What prepares men for totalitarian domination in the non-totalitarian world is the fact that loneliness, once a borderline experience, usually suffered in certain marginal social conditions, like old age, has become an everyday experience of the ever-growing masses of our country. Is loneliness a political danger? I'm Sean Ailing, and today I'm your host for The Philosophers, a new series from Vox Conversations about great thinkers and their relevance today. If you ask me to name the most important political thinker of the 20th century, my answer would be Hannah Arendt. You can make arguments for others, but I always come back to Arendt. She's probably best known for her reporting on the 1961 trial of Nazi officer Adolf Eichmann and for coining the phrase, the banality of evil. The banality of evil. The banality of evil. Everybody knows the phrase, the banality of evil. Many people know that phrase, but they don't know much about Arendt. And that's unfortunate, because there's so much more to explore. Arendt understood her world better than most, and she remains an invaluable voice today. Which is why, for the second episode in our ongoing series, The Philosophers, we're going to focus on the work of Hannah Arendt and its enduring significance. Arendt was born into a German-Jewish family in 1906, and she lived in East Prussia until she was forced to flee the Nazis in 1933. She then lived in Paris for the next eight years until the Nazis invaded France. At which point, she fled a second time to the United States, where she lived the rest of her life as a professor and a public intellectual. Arendt's life and thought were shaped by her refugee experiences and by the horrors of the Holocaust. In massively ambitious books like The Origins of Totalitarianism and the Human Condition, she tried to make sense of the political pathologies of the 20th century. She was always thinking deeply about human nature and what it means to think and judge and take responsibility for the world. And what happens when we stop doing those things. Reading Arendt today can be a little disorienting. On the one hand, the way she writes the regimes she describes, the technology she's worried about, it all feels very distant, like it's from a totally different world. And yet, at the same time, the threats she identifies, the means of control and exploitation, 
and her insights about our inner lives are as relevant today as they were 70 years ago. Arendt thought politics was an almost sacred space in human life. It was the place where we came together with other people to make sense of our world and affirm our individual identities. It was the place where we created something new. Her great worry, maybe her greatest worry, was that modern politics had become machine-like. It had, in fact, become the art of turning human beings into machines. And she believed that we had lost the ability to even imagine a new world, in part because we felt so alienated from the world we built. These episodes are not meant to capture the full breadth of a philosopher's work, but we can introduce the ideas that speak to the present. For this episode, I reached out to Lindsay Stonebridge, a humanities professor at the University of Birmingham in the UK. We'll talk about the relationship between loneliness and totalitarianism, what it means to really think, and what happens when the space for genuine political participation disappears. Lindsay's written two books about Arendt's legacy and just finished a third about her life and ideas, which will be out early next year. That's a lot of time to spend with one thinker. So what was it about Hannah Arendt that drew her in? What first put me into Arendt was wanting to understand how evil was organized, how what I was seeing in the world came to have its place in the world. And before I came to Arendt, I'd spent a lot of time with psychoanalysis. And psychoanalysis was very good at telling us about where evil comes from. And Hannah Arendt was very, very good at telling me how evil was organized. And then I got drawn in. So the book that I've just finished is basically, it's a critical and creative biography of Hannah Arendt, where I am in dialogue and conversation with her, because that's the other thing that really draws me into Arendt, is the sense of thinking and learning and understanding, another key word for her, is part of a process which is both to do with the self, but also so fundamentally to do with others. And as I wrote, when I started working on Hannah Arendt, she was not as fashionable as she is now, believe me. And as I wrote, of course, we again had very similar, or certainly not the same, sets of historical circumstances that produced, on the one hand, mass uprootedness, statelessness, and on the other, a turn back to an authoritarian or right-wing politics. So the more I've worked on her, the more relevant she has become. And not in a way she'd necessarily like, I must say, <laughs> as well. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, And Arendt was a political theorist who spent a lot of time thinking about loneliness, which seems like a subject for psychology, not political theory. But in Arendt's mind, loneliness was an enormous political problem. She actually defined totalitarianism as organized loneliness. And so I want to start there. Why was she so 
concerned about loneliness? Yeah, that's a great question. She comes to loneliness at the end of a very long study of what led to totalitarianism in Europe. And you're absolutely right, Sean. I mean, she is a political thinker, but remember, she was also an existential thinker. So she's preoccupied always with the question of being, of thinking, of existence. What makes her particularly novel and original political thinker is she brings existentialism together with political reality. So she gets to loneliness actually after she's written her big book on totalitarianism which she started writing when she was a refugee in Europe. I mean, a lot of the first two chapters of that book are lived history. She knew what she was talking about because she'd lived that history. So what she said on the one hand, and I really want to insist on this because I get worried that conversations about loneliness get detached from very real conditions that produce the sense of loneliness. So she was talking about things like the disillusionment of people with the elites who are running Europe. Unemployment, the end of the bourgeois dream that if you just worked hard, you get wealthier, wealthier, more stateless, you become more important. Inflation, mass war, mass statelessness, all these things. And like other thinkers, she understood loneliness as this peculiarly modern problem. It's a problem that comes with individualism, it's a problem that comes with capitalism, it's a problem that comes with modernity. So Karl Marx will talk about alienation, Max Weber will talk about disenchantment. Simone Weil, another brilliant woman thinker who doesn't get nearly enough attention, will also talk about uprootedness in the same way as Hannah Arendt. So she talks about loneliness as a distinct modern problem. And what she means when she gets to loneliness finally is after she's finished on totalitarianism, she puts the book away and she goes back to Europe. And she's also been in the US by then for at least 10 years. And she looks in two directions. She looks both to the Nazi totalitarianism, which has just ended, but also Soviet totalitarianism, which is still going mightily strong. And she looks towards her new home in America. And what she sees in terms of loneliness is what makes us lonely is the lack of a common ground of experience. The ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, in other words, the reality of experience, and the distinction between true and false, that is, standards of thought, people for whom those distinctions no longer exist. I want to linger on this point just for a second so that we don't gloss over it. Yeah. This idea that we can be surrounded by people and utterly alone and that we can also be by ourselves without being lonely is so important. And I do want to make sure we get our hands around it. Yes. We live in what feels like a very crowded world, but our connections are are so hollow and mostly virtual. And it doesn't feel like we're part of political communities in the sense that Arendt would recognize it. We often lack real deep social relationships. It feels like we're together alone in some kind of weird way. And do you think Arendt would look at the world of 2022 and think we're more lonely than ever? Yes, I do think she would have thought that. And for several reasons, in some ways, it's exactly what you describe. When she finished um, Origins of Totalitarianism, she was very good friends with the great American sociologist David Reisman. 
who wrote a book called The Lonely Crowd, which gets to your point there, Sean, about you know, the thing about modern loneliness is you're not sort of stuck on an island somewhere. You're surrounded with other people and you're lonely. Why is that? And, and part of our answer to that is because you're stuck in a crowd, because the space we need between us that gives us our sense of self or identity is lacking. And her name for that in non-totalitarian societies, such as America, is what she calls society. When she arrived in America, I mean, it's this great letter she writes to her old teacher, Carl Jasperson. She says, I just don't understand how a country with such a politically radical system can be so socially conservative. And what she saw, what David Wiseman helped her see, and this goes back to your point about being lonely in a crowd, Sean, this kind of drive towards social conservatism was a part of consumer society, was a part of the PR machine that was driving social conformity in a way that meant that social life was both impinging on personal life, the private, and on political life, which became, you know, don't you worry your heads about that, politics is over here. But everything was being taken up by this kind of drive towards the social. And I think you should look now certainly at social media, which would have been like, you know, this is my nightmare. She said, I told you this was going to happen. <laughs> Two things come together. You have, again, that sense of everyone's supposed to be together on social media. Everyone's supposed to be showing their best selves. But actually, what you get is something that can make you lonelier with each click. That sense that you're, you're actually being manipulated or your behavior is being pushed in a certain way, which is, of course, true because social media is governed not by just clever people who want a different life or clever people who want to share ideas. It's governed by behaviorists who understand algorithms and want to monetize people's interests. One thing that Arendt talks about in the Origins book is the emergence of what she calls the masses, which is distinct from what we might think of as classes or interest groups, because those are groups that are by definition fighting for some common interest. And she talks about the rise of an unorganized mass of what she calls mostly furious individuals who believe they had nothing in common except for their contempt for the present order. And she calls this negative solidarity. And it's the raw material of totalitarianism because it's, it is a world without real connection, without real friendship, where the only basis of collective action is some kind of awful combination of anger and desperation. Mm -hmm. How did the world get so lonely in the first place for her? Did she have some theory about it? Is, is it really just the kind of emergence of capitalism and, and individualism that produced this situation? Yes, and, and some more. I mean, I think when I was rereading Origins of Totalitarianism a couple of months ago, I was astonished by how often the word hate came into her conversation of the creation of the mass. Yeah. There's a kind of evolution. You start with not the mass, but the mob. And she noticed that, you know, it's really easy to work with people's anger and, and whip up a mob. And she has this you know, great statement in Origins of Totalitarianism, which this sounds very familiar to a lot of us, I think, at the moment, is the alliance between the mob and the elite. And the elite spotting the anger that's there, the hate that is there. And I would go back to, I mean, she is a historian, so she, you know, she's going to say it is things like unemployment. It is things 
like not being able to keep your home. And when you look at the early 20th century and look at those rates of inflation and unemployment, and then you have world war, and then you have civil war across Europe, and then you have mass migration. This isn't a kind of ennui here. This is raw stuff. This is very, very real stuff. So she noticed how easy it was to raise a mob. So you start with the mob and you start with that anger, but you know the anger is real. And then you have this creation of the mass, which is like, you know, next stage. It's, this isn't just fascism. This isn't just populism. This is totalitarianism proper in Arendt's book. And she says at one point in a quote that I think has resonated with me for a few years now, she says, the masses escape from reality is a verdict against the world in which they are forced to live. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So when you sort of think, oh, mass identification, and the question is like, well, how can anyone be so stupid? How can anyone fall for this? This is a verdict against the world in which they have to live. Mm. It's a kind of, you know, slap in the face. It's a finger up against the real conditions of existence. I love that you made that point about reality, right? Because there is in Arendt a kind of philosophical anthropology or vision of human nature. She understands this very human need for a horizon, for a story of the world that makes everything cohere. And this is so important for her because what happens when we start to feel so alone or so estranged from our world, and as you just alluded to, she uses the word homeless, rootless a lot, is that we start to look for ways to escape our reality, to deny it. And that longing for a world that makes more sense, that feels more familiar, makes us vulnerable to totalizing political movements. And this is something I think a lot of enemies of totalitarianism back then, and maybe a lot of enemies of fascism or certain kinds of reactionary politics today, do not understand. People are drawn into these movements because they offer a counter-reality. And arguments about the world that people have already rejected are just besides the point. She says in the book, a totalitarian reality can't be disproved. It can only be replaced by another, a stronger or better reality. And this is why when we reach this place where we don't have anything like a shared reality, we're in deep, deep trouble because there's no way to appeal to someone who inhabits a different reality. You are quite literally disconnected. Mm. And that's where we are. And that's where people were then, at least in her mind. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, she says these narratives give a coherence on the one hand. It makes sense. It's them. It's the Jews. You know, it's the woke. It's critical race theory. It's whatever. And it's consistent because it's always going to be them. (laughs) But so, you know, if you look at Nazism or, or she'll say Soviet style Bolshevism, the logic of white supremacy is already always going to be white supremacy, right? And why isn't white supremacy supreme? Well, it's them. <laughs> it's, it's always going to be consistent. It's a consistent narrative. One, one thing I think is the good news is it keeps on having to generate itself. The thing about these sort of narratives and right-wing alternatives to an impossible life, you'll notice that they always offer things that are too abstract to be tested by reality, okay? So whether it's, what, do you, what, what, what are you lacking them? What do you need? Strength. <laughs> what do you need? Christmas, heterosexuality. Yeah. They don't offer people things like full unionization or a minimum wage or healthcare. Right. <laughs> um, because you can bloody you could see those things. Yep. They always offer abstractions. But the thing I think is hopeful about that 
is you keep on having to do it. You keep on having to create new enemies. You keep on having to create new abstractions. And in some ways, people will see, you know, totalitarianist populism is exhausting. It's the opposite of the stability that kind of the strong leader or the coherent narrative is supposed to offer. Because to generate itself, it has to just keep on coming. More people to hate. More people are getting at you. Constantly in motion, she says. Yeah, if it's not working, like I said it was working, it's going to be their fault again. She always said, you know, totalitarianism is a movement. It's not a state. Yeah, and that's the thing about abstractions. They're, they're very plastic. Exactly. <laughs> you can constantly manipulate them and bend them in ways that are convenient. Yeah, exactly. But the other thing, I think you know, people will often refer to the masses as if they're gullible and stupid, which is, you know, one hand, terrible politics, mm, right? terrible yeah. politics. But on the other hand, also stupid. I mean, people aren't stupid. And the key term, and I think this is nearly as important as loneliness, you know, Sean, is cynicism. Totalitarianism works through cynicism. It's crucial, 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 because it allows people to say, and we've heard this again and again and again, go back to that disillusionment, go back to that sense of not being entitled. They're all the same. I know it's all bullshit. I know it's, you know, it's just politics, isn't it? And what cynicism allows you to do is be gullible and disbelieving at the same time. I think you see this really clearly in people who follow Brexit in the UK, who people who follow Trump. It's cynicism. And why this is so important is not just because it explains a kind of logic. Cynicism is terribly dangerous. People get so cynical to the point that life doesn't matter. Or they get so cynical to the point that they think they don't matter. Okay. So there's a story that Arendt tells in her book on Eichmann, which is actually quite poignant because it's about her hometown, it's about Konsberg. And she says at the end of the war, there's a doctor who's trying to get people out and help them. There's this old lady there who says, I want you to treat my varicose veins, doctor. And she say, what? You know, we're about to be invaded by the Soviets. We need to get out. And she said, yeah, but then my, my varicose veins have been really troubling me. I need to get them done. And she, he said, I think you have other things to worry about, lady, rather than your varicose veins. You have to escape. And she says, well, look, this won't happen. We're just, you know, they're not going to take over. It's okay, don't worry. Um, the, the Fuhrer is going to gas us first. And Arendt says, this, this woman has become so cynical. Not only does she think that Jews aren't important, she thinks that she's so unimportant that the best thing that can happen to her is, one, she might get her varicose veins fixed, or two, she might be gassed. And, and this is a moment for Arendt, which is like, this is where cynicism ends. This is where this kind of cynicism ends. It's the yeah. superfluousness of other people, which we can see because we put them in refugee camps, we put them in migrant camps, we put them on bare minimum subsistence wages, we incarcerate them by the millions. Don't forget, that links to everybody thinking that they are worthless. It's indiscriminate. Yes. And I want to connect all of this to Arendt's understanding of what it means to think and how this capacity disappears in a lonely world. You know, she thought that before a totalitarian ideology could really take hold, before it could overwhelm reality, it had to first ruin people's relationship with themselves and others by making them so skeptical and so cynical that they could no longer rely upon their own judgment. And I am very glad that you made this point about the stupidity of thinking that everyone is stupid, you know, because she imagines thinking as much more than an activity. She imagines it as a way of being. It is obviously something we do with ourselves, but the real gift 
of thinking isn't all these great ideas and grand theories that intellectuals come up with. The gift of thinking is that as long as you're doing it, you have the capacity to judge. Mm. Can you say a bit about this, Lindsay? What is this connection between thinking and judgment and why is it so critical? Yes, well, let's just start with thinking because the relation, how to get from thinking to judgment is a tricky one in Arendt herself. Yeah. But thinking for her is, I mean, everyone does it. You know, it's, it's kind of radically democratic. Everyone, she says, has that two-in-one dialogue with themselves. Not all the time, because obviously if you stop to think about what you're doing all the time, you'd never get out of bed. But <laughs> a lot of the time, we all have the capacity to think. And she calls it kind of non-specialist, non-cognitive thinking. We don't sit there and say, right, I am going to solve the problem of being. <laughs> we don't. Right, we walk right. around the street. You know, we try and lose ourselves in our thoughts, being, being lost in thought. To be lost in thought is a gift. And Arendt said, this is not time-wasting. This is not you know, frivolous. This is what thinking is, and we need to take it seriously. And she has this beautiful quote where she says, what makes loneliness so unbearable? What makes loneliness so unbearable? Is the loss of one's own self. Is the loss of one's own self, which can be realized in solitude, but confirmed in its identity only by the trusting and trustworthy company of my equals. In this situation, man loses trust in himself as the partner of his thoughts and that elementary confidence in the world, which is necessary to make experiences at all. Self and world, capacity for thought and experience are lost at the same time. Solitude is very different from loneliness. Solitude is where I go to hear myself think, where I regather my thoughts, which makes me fit to return to the world because I'm not clicking on a bloody like or dislike or I'm not following another pattern. I am thinking for myself, which when things are really bad is all we have. But going back to judging, she says, without the ability to think, there cannot be any judgment. When she really saw that is when she looked at Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem in 1961 in the courtroom. And Eichmann, like, you know, we'll, we'll all be familiar with this. Um, it was a self-important man, chuntering away, talking self-importantly, not even realizing who he was facing. The relatives and survivors of people he had murdered. And he just spoke in cliches, he was self-important. And she said, the longer I listened to him, the more obvious it became that his inability to speak was totally connected with his inability to think. Namely, to think from the standpoint of someone else. And elsewhere, she compares him to Shakespeare's Richard III, who has the best soliloquies in all of Shakespeare, as far as I'm concerned. Richard is also evil. You don't want to come across either Eichmann or Richard III. They're not nice guys. But the difference with Richard is he does at least think about what he's doing. Shall I prove myself a villain, he says. Torment myself to catch the English crown. And from that torment, I will free myself or hew my way out with a bloody axe. Shall I do this? Can I live with myself? This is Socrates' question. Can I live with the inner voice in my head? Can I come home to myself if I do this thing? 
And Richard III says, yeah, okay, I can, fine. And then he goes and murders people. Eichmann's got no one home. There's literally no other voice in his head because he cannot think. Right. Now, back to your original point, so you've got a culture that is squeezed out thinking. Then you are in such deep moral trouble because you don't even recognize the moral trouble that you're in. Right. Well, that's why this point about the simplicity and the universality of thinking is so important because she was, again, yeah, this cannot be overstated. By thinking, Arendt did not mean eggheads in a seminar room pontificating about the nature of being or something like that. Absolutely. Thinking is simply having that little voice in your head that allows you to judge what is right in front of you. That's it. And that is something every human being can do. And what was terrifying about the Nazis is that there wasn't actually a collapse of personal responsibility. You know, the Nazi soldiers were throwing people into ovens, but in their minds, they were just following orders. They were accepting yeah. the responsibilities handed to them by their authorities. It was not a collapse of responsibility. It was a collapse of individual judgment. People stopped thinking. Intelligent people stopped thinking. And that is the road to hell. Yeah. And it's also the, I mean, it's the end of that kind of enlightenment promise, which begins with Kant, who, by the way, lived in the town that Arendt was brought up in, in Kernsberg. Kant taught Arendt something very simple. The first thing is we think. <laughs> we think. And how we think has consequences. And what happens when that connection between thinking and the consequences of thinking is broken. And at one moment in the Eichmann trial, Eichmann turns around and says, yeah, I have every faith in a Kant's categorical imperative. And Kant's categorical imperative is act as if the moral law is always within you. So you are your own self-legislator. That's the idea. Then he says, literally he says afterwards, but it just so happens that the law, moral law was Hitler's at the time. At that point, the whole thing breaks down and you know, she got told off for laughing at the Eichmann trial. But there was this farcical moment where he's saying, I, I never broke the law. I always kept to the law. I would never break the law <laughs> because the law for Eichmann was that Jewish people should be killed. That was the law. Right. That was the moral law. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Lindsay Stonebridge after a quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbara Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. 
you know, a lot of people know this phrase, the banality of evil, and there's not much context for it. And this is the phrase that she came up with when she was describing or reporting on the trial of this Nazi soldier, Eichmann. And that pissed a lot of people off, right? Her description of evil in these terms pissed a lot of people off. What was it about these observations, about how evil actually functions, that triggered so many people and that then got her into a bit of a, a controversy? Yeah, a bit of a controversy is an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think fair. it was, I mean, people assumed that she was saying that Nazi crime was banal, but she wasn't right. at all. They also assumed that she was duped by Eichmann. Eichmann, of course, presented himself as a you know, little cog in a big wheel and he was only following orders. That was his obvious defence. And she didn't fall for that. She, she said, you know, there's nothing else to him. It was shallow. That's what you have to understand. Personally, I think she was wrong. I think it was radical evil, plotted radical evil. But what she wasn't wrong about was the kind of shallow evil that gets into everyday thinking and judgments. That's what she wanted to caution against, the thoughtlessness, thought-defying evil. This, this is the banality of evil. You know, People talk about evil like a cancer, which is deep and rotting. She says that banality of evil is like fungus. It just gets everywhere. It spreads. It becomes normalized. You're not going to get your head around this evil if you're going to talk heroes and villains. That was the easiest story one could tell about someone like Eichmann or any Nazi soldier, right? Like they're just some kind of moral monster. But it's actually much worse if people can exist in an incentive structure where moral responsibility and judgment get eradicated or diffused or whatever, so that anyone is capable of anything under the right conditions. That is actually much more horrifying than a world where there are you know, occasional moral monsters among us. Yeah, this is the reality. She's giving an existential response to a new political configuration. Because the other thing about Nazi totalitarianism, she thought the same about Bolshevism as well, is unlike authoritarianism or populism or dictation or fascism, but unlike them, they had at their center the desire to eliminate human spontaneity itself. And unless you recognize that radical expendability of the human and that the evil is organized in order to make that a reality, then you're going to miss what's really dangerous about this system. She fled Nazism twice and eventually landed in New York in 1941, I believe, and she ended up teaching at, at several different universities, including Princeton, Berkeley, the New School, probably a few others. What did she make of America when she got here? Did she think we were lonely? Did she think Americans were thinking in ways that might help them avoid the totalitarian horrors she left behind in Europe? She had two visions of America. I often refer to Hannah Arendt having pigeon eyes because she tended to look at both sides of life. On the one hand, she was concerned about American culture because she saw in the rise of consumer culture a tendency that had already been there, which was about social conservatism and social conformity. So when she arrived in America, she wrote to Carl Jaspers, her old teacher, and she said, it's amazing, I can't understand why a culture that has such a brilliant political foundation, I can't understand how that culture can be so socially conservative. So as she stayed in America, she saw the rise of the social 
as more and more insidious, especially with the coming together of PR, consumer capitalism, took America further and further away from what she understood to be its revolutionary tradition. So she, she did really worry, and she worried particularly about how politics was going to get evacuated from the American scene. And she writes about it in on totalitarianism. In fact, David Reisman, the sociologist and author of The Lonely Crowd, wanted her to write a chapter on America in Origins of Totalitarianism. So she did see the loneliness of the crowd, the lonely America, right in front of her in the late 40s and early 1950s. But in the very last paper that she published was based on a talk that she gave in 1975, and she was asked to talk in Boston. And she gave this eviscerating talk, literally about three weeks after the fall of Saigon. And in that, she says, this is what America has to face, is what has happened is that America has gone further and further away from itself into a culture in which politics is marketing, in which politics is PR. And what has happened is that these things have been packaged to take America further and further away from its own revolutionary and political spirit. And what the fall of Saigon revealed to her, but was not revealing to America, was that America just suffered a humiliating and outright defeat. And then she listed the things that led up to that. She talked about the Pentagon Papers, and this is where it gets very, very familiar. She says the Pentagon Papers reveal that there was no purpose to that war other than maintaining the fiction that America was an all-powerful free nation. A fiction, by the way, that was good enough for other people's children to die for. And none other than to maintain the fiction that America was powerful and was the leader of the free democratic world, that it was the bastion against um, communism. What Watergate, which was swiftly followed, then revealed that this whole thing was being cooked together by a bunch of second-rate crooks. This was politics. This was American politics. It done, again, you know, it, well, not for the last time, Hannah, would America be run by a bunch of second-rate crooks. You have to recognize this reality. The reality is America is not great and free and wonderful. It's not that powerful. You've just lost. You've catastrophically lost. And you've catastrophically jeopardized your politics in that. That's what she called the big lie. And it's a phrase that was picked up when Trump did his own big lie and claimed that he'd actually won the election. And commentators were quite quick to seize on this, this phrase from Arendt, quite rightly, because she's saying, this is how totalitarianism works. You just, you just invent an outrageous big lie and you stick to it. And she said, look, guys, Vietnam and the 70s have revealed to you that this is fundamentally not true. And the best thing about America, she said, is it's usually very good on reality. You know, Usually realism was you know, an American thing. And you are missing what she calls the best and the worst of yourselves. And you were better than this. You've got to actually face up to that reality. This was eventually published in the New York Review of Books. But before that, the report was given in the New York Times. And loads of people wrote to her saying, wow, this sounds like an amazing talk. Can we have a copy? And one of them was Joe Biden. And when Joe Biden was elected, people found his letter to Hannah Arendt in the archives, where Joe Biden said, I'd really like to copy your paper. It sounds really interesting. That's amazing. I didn't know that uh, story about Joe Biden. I didn't know that he had... Uh... Yeah. But he needs to reread the paper. <laughs> I mean... 
what do you think she would make of, of social media and, and technology today? I mean, would she say that in America, at least that the algorithms are doing our thinking for us almost entirely, that we're just instruments of our, our algorithms? Yes. Yeah, she would. Well, that seems not great. Yeah. <laughs> and I think what she'd be really sad, because the other thing, what she'd be sad about is what happens when young people in particular. So I think she would, I mean, she was appalling on American race relations and didn't get black America at all. And I think her racism was pretty indefensible on several occasions, but that's a different subject. But what she would have liked about Black Lives Matter, what she liked about the student movement, was what happened when people do act in concert and act in freedom. That's always going to be saving grace. And that's why she'll always talk about the new beginnings. So that she would have liked, what she would have thought was tragic, was that being algorithmized <laughs> into social media. Because you then don't get the very messy business of politics, which is sitting in rooms with people who are really pissy and annoying, <laughs> trying to get something done. Um, and you're not just sitting there clicking on theories. You're, you're actually having to deal with the messy reality of politics and action. And I think she would have been appalled by the hemorrhaging of political energy. The story was she was at Berkeley, she went down to visit Stanford and their new behaviorist, new behavioral research unit, and was appalled. The thing about behaviorism, she says, it's not that it's wrong, is it could be true. People's behavior can get monetized, manipulated, and pushed into certain directions. And then yet again, you have lost the opportunity for genuine political action. Okay, you brought up behaviorism, which is a term that can mean a few different things depending on the context. But broadly speaking, it's really the idea that human behavior can be predicted and controlled, like rats in a cage, with the right external stimuli. And this was developed alongside a whole lot of experiments famously by Ivan Pavlov in the 19th century and people like B.F. Skinner in the 20th. In Arendt's view, what was so odious about all of that? Well, it was the science of human behavior. We will observe how people behave in experiments. And based on what we observe about human behavior, we can then create a world which will fit it better. But as Arendt said quite clearly, the problem with behaviorism is not that it might not be right, is it might make things true. There's a slippage between describing the behavior you're seeing and then predicting and then creating a new reality. Once you have described and decided how people respond in certain situations, whether it's market situations or moral situations or group situations, at what point do you start predicting that reality so it then becomes a reality. So you can say with the algorithm thing, you know, well, that's nice. They've noticed that I like, you know, that kind of book and they're just giving me things to think about. And then it becomes intrusive. Or you think about how behaviorism has been weaponized in interference with free and fair elections. So I notice you, you know, I notice you're really preoccupied with your health. Let's see what else might scare you. Are you scared about migration? Are you scared about this? Are you scared about that? So that's what she saw is behaviorism was another way of producing a kind of logicality. Well, what she saw with totalitarianism is that these principles of actions were just getting turned into a kind of logicality, which was driving ideology. They were just becoming ideology. 
And so like with Nazism, the ideology was race-based. The way the world makes sense is through the prism of the white great race. Wait, behaviorism and other kind of logicalities work is having the logic that says X is Y that then governs human behavior, stamping out spontaneity. And we all know that. I mean, we know this to be existentially vile, you know, even if it's just like, you know, why, did, why does social media think I'd ever wear cat shoes or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're going to take one last short break, but stay with us for the rest of my conversation with Lindsay Stonebridge right after this. I've always placed Arendt on the political left. I always thought of her as an anti-totalitarian leftist, which is, you know, surprise, surprise, kind of how I think of my own political identity. So maybe I'm just projecting there. But the more I engage with her, the more complicated she seems to be. I mean, she has this idea of politics that really valorizes, if that's the right word, individualism. And not in like the Ayn Randian sense, but like in the sense that, as we were saying earlier, being an individual is critical to judging how would you categorize her? Is she even categorizable? I don't think she is, and she'd said herself that. But you're right about the individualism, but also wrong because she was taught by Martin Heidegger, and she was terribly influenced by Martin Heidegger and by Nietzsche. But her version of being was never a version of being that was of the cost of reality or of others. For her, the existential questions were also political. They could never, ever be separated. And as soon as you think they could be separated, as soon as you thought you could will your thinking into the world, I mean, Heidegger thought thinking and action were the same thing. Arendt said they're absolutely not. You, you should not try and put your thoughts into the world uh, because you will tread over other people. So in some ways, I think it's certainly true, and it's said quite a lot, it's been said since the 1950s, that Perhaps she didn't understand how deep capitalism went. Although even that, I think she certainly understood where consumerism went. She certainly understood the existential price to be paid for a culture of endless consumerism. You know, she, you know, freedom for her is not a condition. It's something that we do with other people. And the place we do it is politics. And politics for her is all about co-constructing our collective reality and transcending our loneliness at the same time. And one of the scariest things about our current political reality is that this idea, this idea of creating a new and better world and thinking seriously about our own is tied to our ability to imagine a new world. And I think a lot of people today struggle to even imagine what a different world would look like. I feel like we're torn between people either defending the broken world we have or blindly rejecting it without any positive alternatives. And that seems like an abyss. I think just to push back a little bit, she would have been very suspicious of of the idea of creating a new world because that's kind of when revolutions go wrong. Mm. Working and making things is very important in Arendt's thinking, but she did not think you should make a new reality. Because reality is already there. What you need is a politics that is responsive 
to the reality of living in a plural world. So the idea of creating a new world, she immediately go, well, yeah, that's been done. And look, <laughs> look what happened. If you think you can turn people into certain types of people, then you're already kind of getting back into some really, really tricky politics. If you read her carefully, what she's always talking about is the politics of hearing and doing together in concert, but also with spaces between us, because the fundamental fact of the human condition for Arendt is its plurality. So one of the political systems she was quite fond of, which is a kind of ancient and arcane, and very difficult to work out whether it actually existed, is something Herodotus called isonomia, which was happening in, in basically in kind of migrant communities pre the moment of Athenian democracy. And actually Athenian democracy was kicking back against this. And isonomia was a form of direct democracy. So there weren't parties, there weren't representatives. People directly debating, people directly in public spaces, people directly deciding what was right and what was wrong and who was going to stay and who was going to be a stranger and who was going to be a citizen and that. And that model of direct participation, the happiness which comes from that public freedom, is kind of what she's getting at. Her thinking on politics is profoundly anti-ideological in that way because of human reality. And human reality is about plurality and it's about change as well. Well, she was influenced by the ancient Greeks and ancient Greece was obviously a slave society and Arendt wasn't nostalgic about the past. She certainly didn't endorse slavery and she didn't want to wind back the clock, but she did think there was something worth salvaging from the past. And one thing about Greece was that it was a form of life in which the necessities were taken care of by an underclass and that created the space for the select few to do politics. I feel like what she was really always trying to do was distinguish working and consuming from real politics. And mm -hmm. pretty much all we do now is work, consume, and then respond to, the, to stimuli. Yeah. Um, and that's not politics. But I guess sometimes I, I don't know what the sort of politics she envisioned looks like in yeah. this world. It feels like the political space that she desired is just gone. Yeah. If she was here, she'd say, good, I'm glad you can't envisage my vision because my vision is not the vision. <laughs> it's you to act and to make that. So she'd, she'd say, bang on. She was certainly not endorsing um, slavery. What she did say, and this is where she thought Marx was brilliant and then wrong. The laboring man, as Marx correctly understood, had become the central feature of capitalism. That's because you exchange your labor, right? But at that point, then work does become sheer labor because you're laboring simply to consume more. So what looks like freedom actually turns out to be the freedom to labor. And it is quite acute when you look at, I mean, who got to do this stuff in the Greek polis? It was privileged white men, surprise, surprise, plus a change. But what she was very alert to, if you read her carefully, is the fact that what happens when slaves and women get emancipated? They do more labor. Slaves and women get emancipated into the social. And you think, well, this looks familiar. <laughs> it doesn't seem to be, you know, the walking around and getting to make the decisions and be a real person. This seems to be like doing more, more shit to get more shit. And so she just thought, what, what are you being emancipated into here? That was her point. And you're quite right. And it was like, what happens when, again, this isn't emancipation, which in terms of kind of like self-determination or imagination or creativity or making anything new is valued. It's the emancipation that you can work so hard, then you can be free. Free to do what? She says, we just invent more ways of consuming stuff, which is what's happened. You know, 
<laughs> yeah, it kind of feels like the behavioralist won, and yeah. and not just won, but won a total victory in the sense that we really have been reduced to atoms of consumption in the way that she worried. We we we're just sort of yeah. feel like puppets on strings we can't even see. Yeah, but there is a. I mean, in some ways, the COVID experience was an occasion for hope and Black Lives Matter because there are those moments where people break out. I can remember talking to a couple of conservatives. When COVID started, people said to me, but the behaviourists say that people won't do lockdown. They won't do this. And they were all really surprised because people did. Why did they? Because they valued the human condition. We're back to Camus here, right? You know, they behaved not because they were put in behaviourist models about how much restrictions on their freedom they would take. And it turned out they'd take this much and not that much. And there's an algorithm that could plot how many times you're willing to wear a mask before you blow something up or whatever the algorithm says. People did it for something that was, you know, outside the current thinking. They were not being behaviourists. They were looking after themselves because they valued the human condition. And the same ways that people broke rules about, I am going to go and kiss my loved one goodbye, because that's human. So I think in some ways, yes, you're right, and it can be desperate. But on the other hand, I think with Arendt, there's a principle of the human condition where she says, you know, as long as people keep getting born, the narrative can change. And so, yes, if she was around now, she'd say, yeah, I, I did tell you this would happen. But on the other hand, she would be pointing to those moments where spontaneity happens, where things don't go the way that things are planned. There is something kind of creepily self-fulfilling about this, and I think you're getting at it, right? Where it's like, there's clearly something like fundamental and universal about human nature. And there's clearly also a part of human nature that is plastic. And when you reduce human beings to just a bundle of impulses and stimuli and then start feeding those we do sort of become like rats in a skinner box and at some point we cease to be free i don't know where the where the line is exactly but at some point we certainly cease to be free in the sense that our rent would have recognized it yeah i think that's right but i also want to come back to where she first starts to work out this idea which is where we started this conversation sean which is her essay called ideology and terror is there are two sides to this coin. And one is the ideological one. I think you're right. You know, there is a sense in which, you know, existentially when we think about these things, is there's a palpable lack of freedom. But remember the title of her essay, Ideology and Terror, Terror. You know, people in Syria have been telling us, as people in Ukraine are telling us, as anyone who's served will tell us, Terror is the brute reality. Terror is not a metaphor. Terror is not just something you filter through through your screens. Brute terror is the other side. So when she talks about loneliness, loneliness in a totalitarian society is the loneliness of not knowing whether your neighbor or your lover or your child is going to shop you to the police and you're going to end up with a bullet in your neck. It's not knowing whether your children are going to be taken from you and deported and put into a camp. That is terror. And that's how that loneliness works. The loneliness of consumer society and social media, it seems to me, is related to that. But we have more agency. And I kind of want to insist upon the reality of terror and horror, because that, that, is, where, that is where we are right now. 
this is kind of a ridiculous, unanswerable question, but whatever, it won't be the first or the last one I ask. <laughs> what would a rent have us do today, right now? Think. She'd have us think. And in some ways, she says, when you have actually absolutely nothing to fight for politically, that's the point where people do start thinking. But you have to actually recognize the reality of the situation that you're in. There are no kind of easy answers out of this. Mm. It's recognizing the reality you're in and which you share with others in the world. But she would balk against telling anyone what they should do out of principle. But she would say, you don't have to do this. <laughs> no one has the right to obey. I mean, it was Kant who said that first, actually. But she, no one has the right to obey. I'm going to leave it right there. Lindsay, this was, um, this was a wonderful conversation. Uh, Lindsay Stonebridge, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you, Sean. Much would be gained if we could eliminate the pernicious word obedience from our vocabulary of moral and political thought. If we think matters through, we might regain some measure of self-confidence and even pride. That is, regain what former times called the dignity or the honor of man. Not perhaps of mankind, but of the status of being human. Hannah Arendt, Personal Responsibility Under Dictatorship, 1964. Stay tuned for a new episode of the Philosopher Series coming next month, right here in the Vox Conversations feed, so make sure you're subscribed. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. The Philosopher Series theme music was composed by Eric Janikis, and Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, if you didn't like the show, we want to hear about it. So let us know what you think of this new series by emailing voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, seriously, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate and review. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.